in driver's ed, they always told us to aim high in steering. So shooting for the horizon is usually the right thing to do. <laughs> oh, there you go. Awesome. You either had the worst or the best driver's ed class ever. They played us that great uh, prom night video. What is it called? Like the last prom where the, where the kids get drunk and then get in the car and drive to prom and they all die. <laughs> so is this driver's ed or sex ed or what? No, it was driver's ed. It was combined, you know. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and tab completion, then check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 60 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. We also have David Brady. Good morning. I have a fresh new bag of innuendo all ready to go, if you know what I mean. <laughs> We have uh, James Edward Gray. Why do you make me follow him? Come on. Josh Susser. Hey, everybody. It's uh, great to be back. I, I had a few weeks off to go deal with uh, my startup stuff, and that went well, and I'm happy to be back on the show. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have Jim Wyrick. Hello there. I'm just happy to be here. All right. Well, we haven't had you on for a while. Do you want to do a brief introduction so people know who you are, Jim? Okay, that's fine. And so I because because nobody knows who Jim is, right? Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. Jim. <laughs> yeah. Break Jim colon defined. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Jim. Sorry about that. Oh, I'm sorry. You wanted me to introduce myself. Ah, yeah. I thought you guys were going to introduce me. Uh, okay, so I'm Jim Warwick. I work for Edgecase, a new context company. We've got to say that entire thing now since we've been bought. Um, and uh, I've been uh, in the Ruby world since like forever. And uh, just really love Ruby and love other technologies as well. And uh, and. I'm particularly interested in the topic today, the uh, solid principles, and and have lots of opinions on that. So, uh, so that, I guess that's why I'm here. Josh and, and is also, also a uh, fantastic ukulele player, right? I love I love ukulele. I play guitar as well. Um, I do some drawing as well, and uh, have uh, yeah, bunch of interest there. Let's. Uh, um, yeah, we were talking earlier about how awesome it would be to have a ukulele version of the Ruby Rogues theme music. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> yeah, true story. Jim Wyrick has actually drawn the Ruby Rogues yeah. while we were wearing great, yeah. great hats. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, at uh, at RailsConf, I sketched a little montage of the uh, five of you up on stage with your that's awesome right. hats. Yeah, that was fun. So Josh is also extremely excited about this episode because it's going to be a one-hour definition. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, somebody define solid. <laughs> <laughs> Ready, go. <laughs> uh, not liquid, not so, gas. Somebody made that joke earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Jim, you've talked about the solid principle a ton. I actually went to um, find the link to the speech. I thought I'll find the speech where Jim discussed it, and I'll post it to our mailing list so people can watch it and uh, get ready for the show. And actually, what I found was a link to like five, six speeches that all mentioned it. 
<laughs> yeah, you know yeah. more about this than Uncle Bob. Oh, that I, I doubt that truly. But Uncle Bob's the originator of, of the solid principles, right? Or at least he's the one who put them all together in a single cohesive piece. He pulled from other people as well. Uh, so the solid principles um, are part of a larger set of principles uh, that deal with object-oriented design. The, the solid principles in particular are ones that deal with object design. There's also uh, some principles on um, uh, uh, module-level design and architectural-level design as well. But the solid ones deal with specifically individual object design and how objects interact with each other at that very basic level. Right. Right. So solid is, is it an acronym? Is that what they call it? Where each letter stands for a different principle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's five principles, and, and gosh, now let's see if we can remember all five. So solid. S is for the uh, single, single responsibility. responsibility. Yep. O is for the open-closed principle. Uh, L is the Liskov substitution principle. I is the... Um, uh, gosh, now I'm trying oh, to remember. Wikipedia. I is... Interface. <laughs> Interface. Interface. D is, yes. Uh, in, is and that an injection? D, and D is uh, the dependency inversion principle. Not yeah. injection principle, but inversion. I says uh, interface okay. segregation oh. principle. Right. Right. Thank you, Wikipedia. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew that off the top of my head. It's very good. That's very good. You're just Wikipedia right off the top of your head. That's right. <laughs> So, so how, how do you want to approach? Do you want to talk about the the principles individually? Do we want to talk about them as a group? Um, yeah, let's let's start off. So, like, why why are these important together collectively, and then we can get into the individual ones. Yeah, yeah well, the, well let, let, Jim, Jim, let's let's set the level before before we dive into okay. all the all the individual principles, because mm -hmm. the you know you mentioned you mentioned you touched on this just a moment ago about. Um, the, you know, whether these are architectural pr principles or what have you. So the, the um, you know, I've, uh, when we were at the Rogues panel at RailsConf, Avdi talked about how uh, most big systems turn into object-oriented systems over time. They just evolve into into that sort of sort of pattern um, in the large. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, uh, but I, but I think that when you're when you're using solid and focusing on stuff, you're really thinking about things as you're writing classes and methods and and figuring out how they interact with each other. So the the what is the when you think about solid, which part of the application development or the system development are you thinking about? Well, solid in particular to me is is individual object design. How are or how an object relates to another object in the groups of objects around him as a part as opposed to partitioning all your objects into sets of modules and um, uh, libraries that communicate with each other and, and work with each other uh, there's other principles in that but solid is just right smack dab in the midst of the object to object level and talking about it at that point mm -hmm. okay I, I think cool. so probably I, I think it's probably good to point out as well that the solid principles were enumerated at a time when um, static languages was all the rage in object-oriented design. I mean, this is back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000 time frame when Java was real big, C++ was real big, and these principles primarily came out of experience with those two languages. So that raises an interesting question of how do these principles that were enunciated with Languages like Java and C++ in mind, how do they apply to a very different language uh, like Ruby or Smalltalk or the more dynamic object-oriented languages? 
You know, that's a really interesting point. When we were waiting uh, to do the show, I went back and watched your 2009 uh, uh, talk at RubyConf, uh, where you covered each of the solid principles. And then I also went and watched Sandy Metz's talk at Garuko, and she covered them as well, the solid principles. And her approach on a couple of them was, uh, and because you use Ruby, you pretty much don't need to worry about this uh, particular principle. But you actually took a different approach in your talk and said, well, it's true that Ruby does this for you as long as we get it right. Um, so I think in particular the I, the interface uh, segregation principle, uh, is the mm -hmm. one in particular that she pretty much blew off and you actually went into uh, why duct typing is important and, and how, how if we don't do that correctly, then we don't get that benefit for free, right? Right, right, right. So what I was trying to do is try to get behind the principle. So if you say this is true in, in Java, if it's important in Java to segregate your interfaces, is there a similar principle in Ruby that uh, we should be looking at? Some kind, so kind of getting behind the principles to the, the, the meat of it that uh, pushes it. So what is the meat here with, 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 like, with that one? Uh, the interface segregation principle? Oh, the, the purpose of that is, uh, um, uh, have you ever, I don't know how many of you have actually worked in, in Java or had a lot of Java experience. I'm sure some of you have at least. Um, have, you, have you ever gone to implement an interface? And uh, so you, you're implementing the interface, and it turns out there's a bazillion methods in that interface that you need to implement just because it's in the interface but have no particular purpose to what your class is doing. <laughs> no, that's never happened to me. <laughs> never happened, no. So you, yeah, absolutely. So you've got an, inter, an it, interface it, which, which is way too wide. Exactly. That, and, the well, idea is that Jim, you're... That, I'm, saying, I'm saying, Jim, that doesn't just happen in Java. That happens in Ruby even. Uh, you know, it's like on the one hand, you have enumerable, which is great. That's a very small interface. That to, mm -hmm. you know, if, you want to, if you want something to be enumerable, you just implement each and you're good. But then, if you want to have something that uh, that ducks type that duck types to pretend to be a different class, like if you want to have something that acts like, say, a string, that's a very wide interface to implement. And if you only want to have something act like a small subset of the string's behavior, there's a lot of overhead with doing all the other methods. Yeah, which makes it really interesting because it changes from a principle about about designing interfaces to a principle about how you write your client software that uses another object. An example is uh, in, uh, in the XML Builder object, you pass in a target object that the XML Builder builds into. And the rule is, in this library, that you only this library only ever uses the shovel operator, the less than less than operator, to put stuff into the target object. Now, you can pass in a string for the target object, you can pass in a file, for the target object, you can pass in anything that implements the shovel operator. But because your client software, the software using this object, using the interface essentially, is using only a small part, that's an easy object to mock out uh, for testing. It's an easy object to substitute in some other kind of thing. And all it has to do is only has to support a single method for that to work. And that's an example of keeping your interface narrow. It becomes a rule for the client software rather than the person designing the interface. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And and like kind of on the flip side of that, we talk in, in Ruby. I mean, the closest thing we have to talking about something like an interface is when we say something like an IO-like object. And and that can be – that's that's a bit vague really. I mean, you know, what is an IO-like object? Is it just an, uh, an object that can respond to the, the shovel operator and, and, and uh, you know, in a couple of read methods or, or is it like or the entire actually, IO right. um, does it interface? Right, support seek, yeah. So, so that's why I really like I really like things like the shovel operator, which has become an idiom for putting things into another object. And lots of different objects of various shapes and sizes support a shovel operator and makes it really handy to do that. Uh, other things, the someone mentioned the enumerable interface. If you define each, you get the entire um, <laughs> the entire array of enumerable methods on that. But then you can assume something's enumerable and you got the enumerable methods and you stick to those and stay away from, say, array-specific operations or set-specific operations. Then anything that's enumerable can be used by your library. I so think we do actually have more examples. For example, you can use array um, array as a stack or queue or things like that. And, and we can usually boil those down to just a couple of methods like push and pop. And we're starting to see that spread to other areas like rescue and stuff, you know, has queue and NQ, which is basically the same thing, you know, and Rails is now trying to standardize that, that particular interface. Yeah, actually, uh, Aaron's talk at RailsConf kind of hit on that as well in that uh, he wanted to define, define how queues operate in Rails, and he didn't want to actually provide an implementation. He just wanted to specify what interface everybody will be using. Again, narrowing the interface down to exactly what you need and only using that. So what about One of my on favorite your, examples. What about on your own objects where um, maybe you have a set of objects that aren't necessarily um, subclasses or superclasses of each other, but need to implement at least some of the same interface for for interacting with another object in your system. Uh, so you're basically defining your own interface. You're not using a standard one that comes out of Ruby or Rails or something. Um, <clears throat> How, how's the best way to do that? And if the object doesn't need it, then do you wind up doing something like uh, DCI or something? Or does, does that fall under this principle, or am I mixing it up with something else? Well, I, I was actually going to say that, that DC, DCI is a particular codification of this. It's in a particular area. So that's an example to look at. Sorry, go ahead, Jim. So I was... No, that, that, that was my question. That was pretty much it. Okay. Well, I think that's I was... interesting because it hits on a couple principles right there. You know, you're designing interfaces, so, interf you know, small interfaces, uh, the interface segregation principle comes in. Uh, you said maybe it doesn't belong in the object, so the single responsibility principle chimes in here at this point. And uh, so I think, I think it touches on a couple different things. I think if you're... I'm going to throw this out. If you're just defining a particular interface that's custom for your app that you expect several objects to uh, conform to, and especially if you expect the user of your library to provide objects that conform to that interface, I think a best, the best way to specify that interface is with a test that you can say, uh, objects of this protocol um, act like this and provide a test that users can use in their own thing to test their own objects. Kind of like active model with their lint test. Yeah, I uh, love active models lint test, right? I was going to say that sometimes we do have other interfaces. For example, I was working in an application the other day and I needed to return what was always some subset 
of uh, these contents and a count of the total contents. And after a while, I realized that that was just a paginated list, right? And I actually started just returning the will paginate collection uh, in that example, because that's exactly what it is, right? It's some subset and uh, with the count of the overall thing, right, built in. So it was interesting. Right, so you're copying somebody else's interface. Right, instead of making up one of my own, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's always nice because then it makes it at least somewhat interchangeable or completely interchangeable if you match the entire interface or the entire API. Well, right. What was awesome about it is um, I didn't realize I was going to need pagination links when I first started building it, but then once I had used a will paginate collection for that, you know, I, I was able to just give them pagination links to go through the rest of the subsets, you know, so it was great. Mm-hmm. Nice. So I'm a little curious too about some of these other ones, like the the single responsibility principle. Um, is is it possible to take that too far? Because it seems like um, you know you can look at an object and it it has some method that does something, and you can decide that it doesn't necessarily fit in with the the core responsibility of it in one way or another, and so you wind up pulling it out. Or I've seen um, people create classes that do a particular job like incrementing an an integer or things like that that you know it seems like it's overkill anyone moving on to Liskov (laughs) (laughs) no I I think single responsibility principles probably one of the basic uh, principles in here if you come away out of anything out of the solid this one certainly applies to Ruby as much as it ever did uh, to Java or C++. And it really, but the idea behind it, single responsibility principle is so that you focus on, so that if something needs to change, those changes tend to be in the same object or in the same small collection of objects. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the idea behind it. Keep your responsibilities small so that if some area of responsibility changes, that's the object that is responsible for it and changes it. I, I had. I, I was just going to say that I had. I had that same problem with the single responsibility principle. That that oh, so you're just making everything so stupid that it can't possibly work. Until somebody explained to me the composed method and the composed class mm-hmm. concept. And SRP is really just composed class. It's not that the class should be as simple as it possibly could, but rather that everything that happens in that class is at the same level of abstraction and is doing the same thing. So that um, you can have a class that, that brings together three other things and, and orchestrates their stuff. But if you have to make a change to that class, to the way that class behaves, you should only have to change that class. If you end up having to change two classes to make the change work, you violated SRP. Yeah, I find that one, like, that, that's one of my favorite principles. I think it's one of the most important I do find it pretty subjective. Like, what denotes a single responsibility seems to depend on which view I take of it. You know, like, if I say, oh, this is modeling an HTTP request, you know, then that means it involves things like a body and some headers and, uh, you know, things like that. Whereas it's also reasonable, you could argue, that a set of headers is its own object, you know, so... It, it seems like it depends on where you take the view from as what exactly is a single uh, responsibility. Because of that, I tend to prefer the definition that a, uh, an object should only have one reason to change, uh, which is probably the best way, I think, to say it. 
but even still, I think it's it's really subjective and depends on what level you're viewing the system at. Right. That, so I I think that uh, that David uh, touched on it just a moment ago, where you talk about changing things, and that if you have to, if you're trying to change, you know, one little bit of functionality or you know the operation of your software, and if you have to go into more than one class to do that, then you probably need to refactor things. Mm -hmm. That. The thing that that I, I, I one of the hard things about principles is knowing how much to apply them, you know, how often to apply them, how, you know, you know where do you want to focus on them, and if you're just writing a piece of code and then you're going to put it, uh, you know, on a on a computer and run it and never touch the code again, then it doesn't matter so much because you've written the code and the technical debt and it will never have to be paid down and you'll never have to touch it again and, and you're fine. It doesn't matter whether something's single responsibility. But the, so the point is that in, you know, as, you're, as you're moving forward and working with the code and maintaining it or fixing bugs or adding features, whatever you have to do, that it's structured the right, right way that when you make a change, you only have to change it in one place. So, mm -hmm. the, so how, you, how you slice and dice it depends on the kind of changes that you're going to have to make in the future. And, and you know, we're not all, you know, we don't all have crystal balls and can't really tell with certainty how that's going to change in the future, but we can make a few good guesses based on how things go usually. So the, so the, so the single responsibility is really about, okay, you know, I've done this thing a couple times before, something similar to it, and I know that it's likely that I'm going to have, oh God, you know, it's a user object and the user has, you know, some, you know, some friendship with other users, I know that that's probably going to be something that I have to deal with in some way. So I'll just put that in a friendship object. Mm -hmm. So, the, what, so that, I, what, one more question. I, I, I think that, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, the, the, the point about uh, this being driven by changes, I think, is very good. All of these principles are not proclamations from on high telling us your code must work like this or else. They are observations that when you follow these rules, then changes tend to be in one place and it's easier to maintain. And so you, you watch your code and you say, oh, I'm this particular object is getting lots of changes. Every time I get a new change request, this object is touched. That's a high indication that probably you're doing something wrong in there. And you begin to look at it for, uh, you know, is it is it following the single responsibility? Well, maybe you thought it was, but it's really not. And you have to rethink what you have to do. So yeah, a lot of this is subjective, but it's always being driven by uh, the maintenance on the system and how to make that as easy as possible. And you have to be kind of self-aware when applying these principles and think, okay, is this really helping me or is it not? And kind of evaluate it from that point of view. Okay. So um, what I what I hear often or, you know, what I see often is with somebody who's more of a novice, um, it can be really hard to make these principles concrete. Like, you know, you've got code, you've got the, the principles and then you've got code in front of you. And, you know, you, it's... You might not even remember, you know, all the what all solid stands for. Um, I'm curious if you have like some examples of of types of pain, like you know, pain points in software, like common things that's like, you know, I I, I I'm this is really starting to annoy me. Um, that should lead you back to one of those one or more of those solid principles. That's like, oh, now I you know that rings a bell. I should I should look at at this principle again and see how I can I can improve my code by applying it. 
So you're looking for code specifically smells the pain or points. Code smells or well, not not, not or? even code smells. Not even codes because code smells. I see code smells as something that like if you've had the pain in the past, if you've done something you know many times, um, you begin to to think of a certain thing as a code smell even maybe before it starts hurting you. I guess what I'm I'm more interested in is like you know what are the thing what are the pain points? What are the things that you know you might not know you might not have identified the principle behind your pain, but you know you're feeling pain. You know you know you're not you're you're not as happy or you're not developing as fast or whatever. I want to hear Jim's answer, but when he's done, I've recently been forced to come up with a good answer to that question and to find a good way around it. But I want to hear Jim's answer, answer first. Well, actually, why don't you go ahead and then I... Um, okay, mine's, yeah. mine's quick. I, I'll, then I'll, he can I'll tell you when you're wrong. Okay. Um, test first. Um, the when d d people I, I recently was coaching a pair of, or a, a team rather, of very intelligent people that didn't know all the Rails idioms, and they had come from Java, and they were bringing their design pattern heavyweight, you know, approaches to everything. And they would get to this point where they would just start writing code, and this 200-line method would emerge. And then they would go back and try and test it. And they wrote something one day, and they didn't write a test first. And the next day, I paired, and I'm like, well, we've got to put this under test. And I found out that we couldn't. And and the reason why is because that their class was writing to the file system. It was opening up a net HTTP connection and doing some raw manipulation on S3 buckets. Um, it had it had spidered out and got its tentacles into like five different subsystems. And I looked at this and I said, you know, in order to in order to test this class. I've got to mock out five major subsystems. If we had done this test first, we would see that this method and this method have nothing to do with each other, and the tests would have shown us that these have nothing to do with each other. These are telling completely different stories. These need to be separa separated out. Secondly, we would have known we need to do dependency inversion or yeah inversion here um, on this thing and you know on this on basically a net HTTP you know provider and a file system provider and and all of these things so that we could stub those out easily and test them and so we, we actually came about came about it uh, in the other direction rather than saying where are our pain points and uh, you know what what can we do to fix it well actually no we did it in exactly that order those were the pain points and the thing that we found that could have fixed it for us was test first just relentlessly test first so that was my answer to the question and I think that's a really good answer too you always look at your pain points to see where you're having pain and you can go to any project and you can say um, ask them what areas of the code you hate to go into and change. And I can guarantee you mm -hmm. just about every project will have an area that they all hate. There's there's where you start looking. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of I things do you usually see in, in that quagmire? <clears throat> I was um, going to say... Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. That's fine. I was going to say that a lot of times, you know, we, we tote these principles as kind of uh, things that you do up front to keep yourself out of trouble and... And as Josh says, especially if it's a, a situation you're familiar with, uh, then then that's great, you know. And, and obviously, you would do that. But a lot of times, it's it's a lot easier to recognize them in retrospect, right? Like Jim talks about, you know, you can ask anybody, "What's the part you hate to go in and change?" And they have an answer, and that that one is probably the source of some of that pain. There was a really good article. Um, recently on uh, the Platform Tech blog about uh, why your uh, web framework should not adopt the Rack API by Jose Valim. 
and uh, it, it's a really good article. Everybody should go read it. Um, he doesn't hate Rack. He he likes Rack and talks about the good thing it does, good things it does. But what he found is that Rack is uh, boxing rails into a couple of corners, and they're trying to fight to get out of those corners. And it's it's due to some of the ways that Rack is designed. And uh, if you go read that article and keep the open-close principle in mind as you do, it's pretty much a, de a description of that, in my opinion. But um, uh, what they really, you know, Rack just hands you that request and expects you to hand it back a response. And what Jose is saying they need in order to do good streaming in Rails is they really need some kind of request that follows the open-close principle where they can... Uh, you know, say, okay, do this before the request and do this after the headers are sent and stuff like that that allows them to hook into those various points so they can handle a process like streaming where they need to, you know, keep the connection open for a time instead of just returning some ready-made response. And it's really interesting reading about what they've learned working on this. And I think that's how a lot of these principles come about, right? It's easier to see them when we're, we're in that kind of trouble. Yeah, I think the hard thing, though, is just, I mean, even then, you know, you come up with this principle and then you, you begin to wonder, okay, well, you know, how, again, I think Avdi kind of hit it where it's, you know, what's the concrete thing that I can, you know, do to uh, to fix this? You know, how, how, how what's the concrete example of, you know, how do I recognize that there's a problem and then, you know, what's the actual solution? Because, I mean, make it so that it has a single responsibility or, you know, make sure that it's following, uh, what is it, Liskov's pr principle, um, Liskov's substitution principle. Um, you know, it, it doesn't actually tell me exactly what I need to change in order to make it better or or what the warning signs are and then what to what to fix. Does that make sense? You guys this are... is a quiet episode. I'm going to start telling poop jokes. <laughs> You're looking for more of a cookbook scenario is what you're saying. Yeah, I, well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if we want to get into that on the show, but, uh, you know, are, are there, so, uh, no pun intended, solid examples of, of, you know, kind of a cookbook style thing that will, you know, say this this is where you're likely to have a problem with this and this is how you go about fixing it? I kind of get the impression that it's more like, uh, like we talked about earlier, that there's, uh, here's a source of pain. It's a general principle rather than a hard and fast law. Here's a, mm -hmm. here's a type of pain that you might experience at some level of, a, you know, it might be a, an acute pain or it might be just a chronic pain or it might be both. Um, and, you know, kind of like the law of Demeter is not, you know, no, no congressional body passed that law. It's just a, a generalized rule that, you know, if you, if you don't follow it, you're going to have this type of pain in this type of direction. And I see solid is especially coming from that direction that, um, that if you find your, like, if you look at the anti-patterns, but there's your, there's your cookbook for the day. If you look at the, the old, uh, anti-patterns book, um, you know, if you've got, um, if you're doing shotgun surgery, which is where you have to change four classes to make any change, um, then you have uh, a, a pretty, pretty clear, uh, SRP violation, um, et cetera. So is that the, what is it? Refactoring book by Fowler? You're talking um, about? no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty sarcastic and cynical book about like anti-patterns of like, uh, uh, just like horrible things that have gone wrong in the code. It's it's like a list of code smells uh -huh. um, that have been that have been documented. So like there's like the lava flow code, um, which is where everything has just 
uh, layers and layers of monolithic crap have been poured over the top, and so you can't change anything without breaking seven without breaking the whole system. Um, uh, because sen- yeah, I was gonna say essentially an anti-pattern is any pattern where after the fact you can say well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, um, in, in talking about this stuff, in talking about solid, uh, you've talked a lot about uh, connaissance, um, yes. and that's been some of the most interesting and thought-provoking um, and, and mentally useful stuff that, I, that I've seen um, in, in any talks, really. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and, and like a few of the types of, of connaissance and, and how, you, how you identify that? Sure, sure, sure. So, so like I said, these principles are kind of trying to get down to some you know, engineering principles that we can follow to, to get to good software. In, in looking at these principles, I've, trying, I've been trying to get down to underneath those. What are the quarks you know, underneath the atoms of our principles that make these things up? And I stumbled across a concept called connaissance by uh, Mueller Page Jones in his book, what, what Every Programmer Should Know About Object-Oriented Programming. And the book is in three parts. The first part is basic OO. You know, if you know any, any OO at all, that, that first part's just an introduction. Won't help you much. The second part of the book is a... Um, notation for designing OO, and uh, then the third book is uh, the third part of the book is um, the concept of kinesis. Yeah, the, the name of the book is what every programmer should know about object-oriented design or object-oriented programming, something like that. So, so kinesis is the concept of when you have to change a program, what else needs to change? And if two pieces, uh, two separate pieces of your code need to change for one reason, because this changes, that over there needs to change, then they are connected by some type of connaissance. And what I really liked about the concept, so we, normally we'd call this coupling. These two things are coupled in some manner. But everybody means something different by coupling. And what um, Paige Jones did with this concept is specify or identify different kinds of of ways that software can be coupled, that, that they can have connaissance. So he speaks of things like connaissance of name, where if I change a name over here, well, I'm using this name over here in this module as well, I've got to change it over there. So if you change the name of a method, a public method in your class, every client that uses it has to change the name of the method that wherever they're using it. So that is connaissance of name. Your library and all the client software using it have connaissance of name with each other. Um, there's something called connaissance of um, position, where the order or position of something in some kind of structure, uh, if that changes, other pieces of code need to change as well. Um, the order of parameters in a calling sequence is essentially connaissance of position. And so he, he broke this down into about, oh, about 9, 10, 11 different kinds of connaissance, some of it kind of static connaissance, some of it rather dynamic. And it was just really interesting to see all the different ways that programs are interconnected with each other in, in ways that they can change that affect other parts of the program. And I really like the fact he gave it a nomenclature and said, okay, now we can talk about these kinds of connaissance. What I, what I love about connaissance, uh, first of all, the word means born together, which is great, um, like a visual imagery for me. 
And you spoke about this at Mountain West RubyConf a couple of years ago, and I just glommed onto this idea like a like a like a beacon. It was just just so great. And the the definition that I took away from it is that connaissance of X means that your code has some implicit property X that if you change that implicit property X, the code has to change as well, or the code will break. So like the order of parameters, the order of arguments in a method, um, if you, you know, if you're, if you're passing in, uh, you know, you want to search through an array, so you've got to pass in a needle and you got to pass in the haystack and you accidentally pass in haystack and the needle because you don't have the function declaration up in front of you, you accidentally swap those around. That's a, just a beautiful illustration of connaissance of, of position. Um, connaissance of name, um, I, I took that less to mean changing the name of the method because that will obviously break if you if you call the wrong method name. But if you change the name of a key in a hash and misspell the key in a hash, um, you're going to break your code. And I, I love this. And the this with apologies to uh, our our editor who is going to have to bleep this, Jim. You you help me coin an anti pattern that when I get very frustrated with a piece of code, um, I will refer to it as connaissance of bullshit, because <laughs> because if the bullshit changes, the code breaks. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. Have you been it's, reading my code, Dave? It's been. It's been a, actually it's it's a formal definition of of BS. It, it it really really is. There's there's times in the code when you just look at something and you're like, this is this is just stupid and idiotic. And management wants it this way. And oh, management changed their mind. Therefore, the code no longer works correctly. Yeah. <laughs> Connaissance of BS. There you go. Nice. I have definitely experienced that. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think we all have when somebody else is defining the um, requirements for the job. Mm -hmm. but, but you take these ideas of connaissance and you look at, back at the principles, the solid principles, and you kind of see relationships between this. For example, we talked earlier about uh, interface um, segregation, making your interfaces narrow. That is, so, so if you have a wide interface, you've got a large dependence on a lot of different names in your interface. By making the interface small, you reduce the connaissance of name between the, between the two parts of the code that are dependent upon that interface. So you can, so I really like the ideas of connaissance um, and seeing them bubbling up into the solid principles and actually giving us an understanding of why the solid principles, you know, are beneficial. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I, Jim, I, I have a question about uh, dealing with this, uh, with these principles in Ruby and if there are particular language features or, or uh, classes in the standard library or what have you that uh, are particularly useful when trying to do things in a solid approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the first three or so, the single responsibility, open close, and Liskov substitution are a part and parcel of the entire Ruby philosophy. They are tied in there and they can be taken uh, almost directly without change from, you know, in their original meanings, especially the Liskov substitution principle. To me, LSP, Liskov substitution principle, is the definition of duct typing. We say mm -hmm. um, root is, is duct type. Well, what that means is that we can take an object and substitute it in, and the program using that object continues to function as before without, without significant change. And that's exactly uh, Liskov's definition of what a subtype is. And so Liskov substitution, duct typing, they're, they're, they're one and the same almost. 
Um, the, the last two, the interface segregation and dependency inversion, don't have a direct application to Ruby, namely because we don't have interfaces to segregate, um, and we don't have interfaces to invert our dependencies toward. But even so, the ideas behind them, I mean, keeping your interfaces narrow is still applicable to Ruby. And staying away from over-dependence on concrete class names is still a guiding principle in Ruby. I don't, I don't think it's nearly as important as it is in other classes or other languages, but uh, it's, still, it's, it's still something that gives them benefit. It makes uh, code easier to test and to mock and to um, just, you know, reuse in other situations. So I think there's still some applicability there. Yeah, it, yeah Jim, it, for the dependency inversion principle, one of, the, one of the smells that I think is uh, pretty good at detecting violations of that principle is when you type a constant name that's you know, outside of the scope of your class. To, so, it, and, and uh, gee, it seems very recently for me because I haven't been on the show in well, like a month. But uh, Avdi was talking about uh, never calling time dot now within your code, but having somebody pass that pass in the current time as an argument to your method, so that you're not tightly coupled to that that constant definition. And we uh, yeah we we actually did that where we had uh, instead of using time dot now, we created a time manager object, but always. We would all do to, to grab the time, and that way we wouldn't have to depend upon time. Now, that allowed us to simulate time very easily by passing in a simulated time manager object, and we use that to always, always, always get the time within the application. Right. So, yeah, so of, I, I, the, play, go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I, actually, the um, yes. Yeah, so, so my point there was, it's not just classes that uh, are are things that you have to worry about for de, for dependency inversion, but there's also you know, well-known objects, um, you know, that sort of thing. But that, but yeah, it's like the, even in your code when you're doing, uh, like when you're writing a, a class method in a class, you know, you know whether you do def self dot whatever or def, you know, the actual class name dot whatever, <laughs> the uh, yeah, that difference uh, matters. And then, uh, you know, so I've seen people do that where they, you know, they do that and then within the method, they actually type out the name of the class as opposed to self. So, the, so those mm -hmm. sorts of, of things, uh, I mean, that's not just the dependency inversion principle there because there's also the uh, some inheritance stuff going on there um, in terms of uh, open closed but uh, that's just the that's one of the smells that that I always keep an eye out for you know when I see when I see people explicitly referring to class names some of those things are are, are totally fine in Ruby it, it, it's not like Java where everything has to be uh, you know uh, glued together really stiffly but uh, you know, you know when people are uh, you know when you're writing code and it's using some some class in the standard library I usually don't have a problem just typing the name of the class directly that's that's not a big deal mm -hmm. but when you're starting to build the the structure of your application and different parts are talking to each other I think I think it's pretty often that explicitly referring to a class by name gets you that sort of connaissance that can get you uh, in a little bit of trouble down the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, unfortunately, I have a hard stop in about 10 minutes, so uh, we need to get to the picks. So uh, I, I hate cutting these things off early, especially when we're having a good uh, conversation about it, but I'm going to. 
So uh, let's go ahead and get this started. Avdi, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Um, so here's a non-code one. Uh, for a few years now, I've been using like a traditional safety razor um, for for shaving, and uh, there, there's a whole like there's a whole geekdom around around shaving these days. I mean, people like go on and on and on about which razor and which razor blade and and which like type of bristles on their on their shaving brush, etc. But but uh, even if you never get into all that stuff. Um, Using a traditional safety razor, you know, which takes double-edged razor blades, is just a really cheap option. If you have any hairs on your body which you which you like to shave, um, you know, uh, you can, you know, the the razor blade, you know, you you buy a decent Merker uh, razor for like fifty bucks, and then the the blades cost you know pennies. Um, and when I compare that to what I used to spend on like cartridges for a, a Mach three, um, there's you know there's just no comparison. So. Um, that's worked really well for me. Um, and, uh, so, so I think, your pick you know, is a Merker uh, uh, razor? uh, well, just, just say safety razors. Um, Merker is a good bland, brand, but, uh, but yeah, safety razor razors. Um, I think I'll also pick, uh, as, as a little bit more code oriented, um, uh, remote pair programming on, on open source projects. Um, I, I, I sort of, I don't really advertise this, but I sort of make a bleak reference to it from time to time that, that pretty much anybody who wants to can get in touch with me and, and, and I'll schedule, like if they want to work on some open source code and, and we can just pair up for two hours and, and work on something. And, um, I often go into those feeling like, oh, I've got a pair programming appointment tonight and I really just want to relax. And then invariably I come out of it feeling great, um, you know, feeling energized. Maybe I learned something. Maybe I was able to pass some, some knowledge on um, and, you know, and and whatever else. I, you know, I, I often get to meet someone new uh, from across the world and and uh, and share perspectives. So um, I, I totally recommend this, even if you don't like, you know, you can you can get in touch with me. Um, you can get in touch with, I, I think probably a lot of people, you know, would get into, would, would enjoy this. You know, if you have somebody that you, you would be interested in working with, you know, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not telling you, you should go out there and just annoy people, but like, you know, if you have somebody who you want to learn from, hit them up sometimes, say, Hey, can I, you know, can we like screen share sometime and, and show in, and, you know, maybe we can share knowledge. Um, work on some open source code, get something out there to the community. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be in a tech hub and like in a co-working space or a cafe that all the programmers hang out at in order to, uh, to work with somebody, uh, you know, that you want to, that you want to share knowledge with. Sounds great. I might have to take you up on that. All right, James, what are your picks? All right. I've got a few, but I'll go through them pretty quick. Um, first of all, I know we've sung praises about Railscast uh, in the past, and obviously that still holds true today. Uh, but definitely go back and see the last two episodes if you haven't. Uh, they've been on security and just really great, super practical uh, dive into uh, web application security uh, that are really great. And I'm so glad Ryan's doing that, and I hope he does some more of that in the future. So those are great episodes. Um, then I'm on vacation this week, so all I'm really doing is goofing off. Um, so the rest of my picks are about goofing off. Uh, first of all, a buddy of mine told me that I needed to go watch the Dragon Tattoo Trilogy, but not to watch the movies, to go watch the six-part Swedish miniseries. Uh, and I've been doing that, and it is absolutely amazing. Um, so I highly recommend that people check that out. It's available on streaming on Netflix, and six parts in each part is like over an hour and a half. So it's just absolutely epic and huge and an awesome uh, uh, 
thing. The lead girl is a hacker, uh, by the way. So just absolutely excellent. Uh, and then another thing is uh, my wife and I wanted to grab just a fun game to play around with while I was on vacation. We'll do that a lot. And uh, this time we picked up Dungeon Defenders. Uh, it's available on Steam. And it's a pretty awesome little tower defense game where you run around setting up the defenses the way you want them and then you start it and the bad guys start pouring in and you can run around repairing your defenses, uh, jumping bad guys yourself so you can get involved in the fight and stuff. Uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, you can play it online with other people so yeah, it's great for just uh, getting a quick game with your wife if that's what you want to do like I did. Uh, so all kinds of fun stuff there. Enjoy. Nice. Now, is the I, I was just looking up the dragon tattoo. Is that Swedish with English subtitles? Yes, correct. So uh, you have to do some reading, uh, but uh, it's totally worth it. What a what a great series. Okay. I, I, I saw that the the Swedish versions too. They're very good. Awesome. I'll have to check those out. Um, David, what are your picks? Uh, okay, so I always say I'm going to do these quickly, and then I fail to do them quickly. So I'm going to do my best to do them quickly by leaving out a lot of data. Uh, I recently got asked, um, almost in the same conversation, uh, um, how to raise kids. I don't have any, so that's a, a funny question for me. <laughs> and um, also how to be a good team lead, how to be a good manager. And I laughed and I said, let me give you the two best books on how to hack your wetware or how to hack somebody else's wetware. Um, and the first book is called How to Behave So Your Children Will Too. It's by Sal Severe, and it's... Uh, hands down the best book on managing uh, people where there's a power negotiation where um, I, I say I don't have kids but I did help raise uh, teenagers for about five years so I do have a little bit of experience in this department and um, this book isn't about uh, well no I'm just gonna leave I'm gonna leave the data out I will just say this is the single best book on understanding the wetware of a teenage mind and how to get three steps ahead of it um, so that uh, they become uh, engaged with uh, basically in their own discipline and, and making their own choices and consequences. The other book um, on on managing people is called The Dog Whisperer, The Compassionate uh, Guide to Nonviolent Approach to Dog Training. Um, this is not by Cesar Milan. Uh, this came out way before Cesar was a thing. So this is a book by uh, Paul Owens and Norma Eckroat. And this is all about how to get inside your dog's mind um, and understand what your dog's, what basically what your dog is thinking. Um, the the basis of the book is that a really smart working dog can learn about uh, 50 words of human language in about five years if you train them really well. But you can you can learn as a human being. You can learn 200 words of dog in two weeks um, if you're willing to sit down and learn to speak their language. And if you train a dog so that the dog understands that it can communicate with you to get her needs met, um, you end up with a much happier dog because now you have a dog that believes that she has control over her environment and knows how to interact with you. And both of those are the two single best books that I use for <laughs> manipulating other people. And that, my secret is out. So uh, basically, they're two books on how to be humane to other people and to, uh, you know, dogs and children. Uh, so there you go. Awesome. Josh, what are your picks? Okay. <clears throat> the mute button uh, so I, is one, I, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that mute button. I use it all the time. Hint, hint. 
<laughs> so uh, uh, I haven't had much time for for coding lately. I've been neck deep in in startup stuff, and that was really fun. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it here now, though. But I will talk about uh, something else that I was doing that was non-coding, and that's Golden Gate Ruby Conference. Okay, uh, the the you know, we always sell out. So if you want to go to the conference, just go register now. The, you know, we we and and just. Uh, I just want to let people know that that you just paid the standard price. We don't have any sort of like discount for groups or anything like that because we always sell out. So it's just not really something that we do. Uh, but the the call for proposals is open right now, and it's going to be open through the end of June. So if you want to come speak, uh, just go to the gogoruko.com website, and there's a link to submit your proposal. We're already getting some really good ones. I'm excited. Okay, so enough self-serving there. Uh, now something about serving society. So go to defendinnovation.org. I don't know if you guys have seen this site, but it, it came up a couple days ago. Something that the Electronic Frontier Foundation put up. I am a proud member. I support them in their agenda to uh, make the software world more sane, especially legally. So defendinnovation.org is about fixing the seriously broken software patent system. So if you if you have some thoughts about that, you can go, you can see what their position is on it. Uh, you can, you know, it's, a, it's an online petition. You can add your name to it and comments and these will be delivered to Congress critters to uh, try and get them involved in a discussion about how we can improve the state of legislation around software IP. So I'm, I'm kind of excited that they're gearing up to take this battle on. It seems like it's about time. Okay. Nice. And, and then I have a pick for an information source. So I know a lot of, of developers are, v, are, um, are uh, getting into doing startups and founding their own businesses. And eventually you have to think about funding uh, unless you're like super lucky and can bootstrap yourself up from nothing without anybody's help. So there's a, there's a blog by a guy named Mark Suster, Suster. Uh, I, I feel bad for not being able to pronounce a name so close to my own. <laughs> uh, but so he's at both sides of the table.com. This is a guy who was an entrepreneur, raised money. Now he's a VC and, and uh, invests in people's companies. And he has some of the best uh, information writing on the funding process and running a startup and interacting with investors. So I would recommend going and reading his stuff. It's great that he... He takes you know, many of his blog posts and will put up an article that organizes the path through reading them. So it's a, he, he makes the information very clear and lays it out well. So I found it really useful. Okay, that's, that's it for me today. I'm, I'm expecting next week I'll have some that are actually about coding. All right, cool. Um, so I'll go next. My first pick is an app for the iPhone that I've been using to uh, get into better shape. It's called Run 5K, and it, it's basically the Couch to 5K program. And it's really nice because effectively what you do is you, you turn it on, and you can keep playing your music while it does it, but what it does is it... It turns your music down for a second and it says, you know, run now or walk now or, you know, cool down or whatever, whatever stage you're at in the, the half hour run that you're doing for Couch to 5K. And uh, so I literally just, you know, uh, strap it to my arm, you know, hit play, tell it to start the workout. And then I just, you know, do what it says. And um, I'm in 
I just finished week five, uh, workout one, day one, and uh, the, it was it was rough, but uh, I got through it and um, really really uh, like it. So. Um, that's, that's one thing that I've been doing. And then usually I'll, I'll wind up go lifting, go and lift weights for, uh, you know, 15 or 20 minutes after I go for a half hour run. Um, the other thing that, uh, I'm going to pick is, uh, there's a podcast that I've been listening to and they also have a mailing list over at copyblogger.com. Um, or is it.org? I don't remember. Anyway, um, it's internet marketing for smart people. Um, they have the podcast. Um, I really enjoy it. They get people like Seth Godin and, uh, then they have the, the copy blogger folks. Um, I, I've also heard episodes from like Chris Brogan and a few other folks out there that are just kind of these, uh, internet marketing geniuses. And, and so you get a lot of good information from them. And so if you're, you're trying to start a business or you're running a business and you want to do some uh, marketing to people on the internet, then internet marketing for smart people is really a great way to go. Um, and, uh, I, I get a little bit more from them because I'm also a member of the third tribe, which is an online, uh, group that talks about marketing and they have, uh, calls twice a month and they usually have special guests come on and talk about stuff. So, um, that, that's pretty cool too. And I'll put that in the pics as well. But, um, if you kind of want to just get your feet wet and figure out what's there, then internet marketing for smart people. Um, finally, um, I just want to, uh, we're going to wrap things up here, but I want to remind you all that I am working on this, uh, JSON API online training, and you can find that at buildingjsonapis.com. So, um, go check it out. It, the landing page is still kind of in process in uh, work in progress, but it has all the information on there and you can sign up for the, the training there. And that'll be on the 18th of July. I think it's, it's a Wednesday. So, uh, anyway, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Um, uh, Chuck, you haven't done Jim. Jim, <laughs> sorry. I was afraid I was going to be left out there. I'll go really quick. Um, uh, a programming uh, pick here for me is a really cheap one because you guys already interviewed Laurent, but the Ruby Motion stuff, uh, Ruby on iPhone, I'm loving that and having a ball doing that. Um, popular media picks. I just finished the most recent book in the George R. R. Martin series, uh, Song of Fire and Ice, and so now I'm ready to for with the rest of you to wait five years for the next book to come out on that. But that was really enjoyable, really uh, gut wrenching, and when he when he kills all my favorite characters, but good series nonetheless. Uh, video pick for you: go to YouTube and search for Pink Five. Uh, if you like Star Wars parodies, uh, you'll discover that there was actually another Jedi involved in all the behind scenes of what was going on with the uh, the uh, uh, movies on on Hoth and on uh, on the. Uh, uh, the moon planet with the uh, little little teddy bear guys. So, um, yeah, uh, that's hilarious and funny. So that's my picks. All right. Sorry about that, Jim. I'm kind of in a, in a hurry to get out because I I think my whole extended family is waiting for me so that we can go to the zoo. So <laughs> You have fun then. Yeah. But anyway, thanks for coming, Jim. We really appreciate it. Okay. Um, thanks for having me. Yep. So, so a couple of uh, business items real quick. Um, you can sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay on the Ruby Rogues website. Um, we're going to be reading Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. Uh, we'll be reviewing it sometime in August. I've gotten a tentative uh, date on that from the authors, but we're still just finalizing everything between the two. So um, other than that, we'll, we'll catch you all next week. And actually one other thing, uh -huh. one other thing, uh, we have, we have not forgotten your rogues golf submissions. We are getting to those. Yes. All right. Let's wrap this up. We'll talk to y'all next week. Thanks everybody. See ya. Bye. Bye.